Genesis chapter 18, verse 16 to the end. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, And said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God. You can sit down. Let's pray. Lord, you've invited Abraham to intercede. You invited him before you to pray. And so we, with the confidence of Abraham, come before you to pray. Lord, you've written these things down for generations and generations and generations to know your righteousness. So, Lord, by your Spirit's power, would you help us to understand what you've written down for us? We know that you'll answer that prayer because you told us you would. And so, Lord... Give us understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a a scene in the movie Moneyball. I don't know if you've seen it, where A's general manager, Billy Bean, is sitting at the table with a group of old baseball scouts and advisors. 
the, the Oakland A's are trying to find a replacement for Jason Giambi, and the scouts have all these recommendations on how they're going to fill that, that hole in the lineup. Then out of nowhere, Billy Bean turns to this nobody, this young statistician named Pete, to ask his advice. And Peter Brand is the young man. He's, a, he's young, he's inexperienced, he's... He's doughy. He doesn't look like a baseball player or like he knows the business of baseball. He really doesn't have any business being at that table with the rest of those salty baseball men. But he knows sabermetrics. And Billy Bean trusts him and he values his input. And when he turns to Pete, it, it signaled this, this new way of managing baseball. It was sort of the, the mark of the beginning of the new baseball. Baseball is trivial. I love it, but it's, it's stupid. It's just a game compared to what we see happening here in Genesis. But I couldn't help but to think of that scene with that young man who has no business being there at that table. Couldn't help but think of that as we see Abraham here being welcomed into what is essentially the divine council. What we are seeing here in the second part of Genesis 18, as God is unfolding the the map of redemption, where he's heading with the redemption of humanity, he unfolds the map, and behind the next crease we see Abraham. It turns out that this covenant with Abraham that we've been learning about is more than just a promise. The covenant really has true real-world application. Last week, we saw a little bit of this. We saw glimpses of the Lord's covenant friendship with, with Abraham as he ate a meal in his home. I'm not seeing the Lord eat a meal with somebody before. This week, we see the Lord's friendship with Abraham as he invites Abraham into the, the counsel of God and shares his thoughts with him. And if you're like, what do you mean counsel of God? Well, we've seen this a little bit before. If you remember way back in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord, remember the plural, the third person plurals, the first person plurals that the Lord used in Genesis 1, the Lord said, let us create man in our image, and and, and we weren't sure quite what that meant, and then in Genesis 3, the Lord says, behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, and then in Genesis 11, in response to the Tower of Babel, the Lord says, come let us go down there to confuse their language. And we've been sort of wondering about this us. Who might this us be? And here in chapter 18, we're starting to see there is a kind of plurality to the Lord and his counsel. The Lord is appearing as a man and he shows up with these two angels who seem to be very, very much close to him. The three of them eat with Abraham, and then the the, the three of them make their way down to Sodom for judgment. Whoever these other two divine beings are, they are within God's inner circle. His, we could call it his posse, if you will allow me that. And I believe this is, at, at, at least some of us, this us that we've been seeing is what we're seeing here. The Lord and these two angels, whoever they are. And the wonder of this passage is that the Lord includes Abraham into that 
group, into that inner circle. Abraham, the man. He's just a man. He's not from heaven. He's not divine in any way. We know thoroughly from the study of Abraham that he is very flawed. He's just a man through whom the Lord has chosen in his own sovereign grace to bring redemption to the world. But what we see in our passage is a little bit more of what Abraham has been chosen for. So in the first section, in in verses 16 through 19, we see Abraham's, for lack of a better word, his qualifications as an intercessor. And then in the second section, in verses 20 and 21, Abraham is invited in to intercede. And then in the last section, verses 22 to 33, the intercessor, Abraham, intercedes. He prays. You see, the, one of the first real acts of intercession in the scriptures, Abraham prays. And that's, that's, those three sections are roughly how we'll break down the passage this morning. So, like I said, that, that, that begins with the intercessor being introduced, or his qualifications being introduced for us. So the passage begins in verse 16 with echoes. Maybe you picked up on this, but there are echoes here in this incident of what happened back in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. The Lord in chapter 11 said he was going to go down to see what was happening in Babel. Remember, we made a big deal out of that. And here we have something similar. The Lord, the Lord along with the two angels, the us, all three are described as men here. They, they all go from Abraham's camp to look down towards Sodom. Exact same language. So we are, we are seeing flashbacks in our minds as good readers of the Bible. We're seeing, oh, this is kind of like Sodom. And then there's something different here. The, the difference between the Babel episode and chapter 18 is what we see in the second part of verse 16 of our passage And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. This is new. This is a new development in the story, in the story of God's interactions with humanity. It's not just the Lord's counsel going down to look at the wicked city. It is the Lord and Abraham. And if we missed that addition, or if you think, oh, that's, I think you're reading too much into that. No, 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 that's the whole point of this text. The Spirit brings this new wrinkle even more to our attention in verse 17. The Lord says it himself. He says, Lord, Lord said, shall I hide from the new guy what I'm about to do? Good question. Because that's really what, like I said, this is what this passage is about. Should God reveal his secrets to Abraham? And when I say secrets, I mean the hidden things of the Lord, the inner thoughts of God. And I'm just using Bible language. To, when I say secrets, Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So here's our scenario. If we were to kind of step back and, and kind of look at this as a contingency, if the Lord does not reveal what he's about to do to Sodom. If he doesn't reveal that to Abraham, then what would happen? Well, Sodom would still be under judgment. Sodom would still receive the the judgment of God that night. But we wouldn't know what happened. Abraham wouldn't know what happened. 
He, he will know. Abraham would, would see it happen. He would see the, the fire raining down from the sky. And, and he would know that his, his visitors, his very special visitors, they walked in that direction. And so he might have a suspicion as to what happened to Sodom. But he won't be able to conclusively say why. Now, I am kind of foretelling. Sodom is about to be destroyed. I hope that doesn't spoil the story for you. I'm assuming you know that. That's a, that's a well-known story. But if you don't know that, it's going to happen. Uh, and, and the Lord is, is asking here whether or not he should tell Abraham that it's going to happen. So Abraham, if the Lord had not told him, he would have about the same insight into that judgment as we do looking back at any massive destruction that we've seen. So they take the, the massive earthquake in, in Turkey from a couple weeks ago. I don't know why that earthquake happened the way that it did. I know that it was massive. I know that we're close to 50,000 people dead now. But I did not receive special revelation as to God's inner thoughts. So all that I can say is the Lord is sovereign over Turkey and Lebanon and Syria as he is over all of creation. He decreed it and he is righteous and just. And that's all we could say. So, so when we see what's happening here on this mountainside with the counsel of the Lord and Abraham looking down towards Sodom, we know that an event of extraordinary destruction is about to take place and the Lord says out loud, should I tell Abraham about it? Now, why would he tell Abraham? We, we've already explored what would happen if he didn't, but why would he tell Abraham? Well, if the Lord is going to do what the Lord is going to do, what does it matter if Abraham knows about it? And the text answers that question for us with two reasons that God has for revealing his secrets to Abraham. Again, these are Abraham's qualifications as one who should hear the secrets of God. The first answer is that Abraham is the Lord's chosen representative to the world. The Lord is, he says himself, he's creating a mighty nation from Abraham. He's blessing the nations through him. Look at verse 18. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. All the nations shall be blessed in him, which is say something special about this guy. If Abraham is the Lord's chosen representative to the earth, he is, by extension, the earth's representative to the Lord. He is an ambassador of the Lord and for the nations. The Lord then, with that understanding that he created, is right to include Abraham, the ambassador to the nations, in his revelation about what has happened, was about to happen to the nations. The second reason that the Lord considers for including Abraham is that Abraham will be the keeper of the way. You heard that word before, the way? Look, look at verse 19. For I have chosen him. Now, just hold on a second. That word chosen here is interesting. In the Hebrew, it is the word to know. So literally, he's saying, I have known him. And some of your translations even use that. The reason our Bible and all modern translations use chosen instead of I have known is because in Bible speak, to be known by God means to be chosen by God. So in Amos 3.2, for example, then the Lord says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's not saying he doesn't know of anybody else on the earth. 
He doesn't know of any other people groups in the earth. He's saying he knows this people in a special way. He's chosen Israel as his people. And this gets us to that Romans 8.29 debate about God's foreknowing. When Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The knowing of the Lord, the foreknowing of the Lord there has to do with the Lord's choosing. So back to our text, the, the Lord has chosen or has known Abraham. What has he chosen him for? Look at the rest of the verse. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So, so listen, if, if Abraham is the one through whom the way of the Lord is to be made known, and if it is Abraham and his offspring who will be the exemplars of righteousness and justice for all the world to see, then the Lord has to teach Abraham the way. He doesn't know it. He's going to teach him the way. And what is the way? Ultimately, the way is Christ. Jesus tells us, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is ultimately the way because Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who brings righteousness and justice. But here, in the immediate context of our passage, even for Abraham, he's to see that the way of Sodom and Gomorrah is not the way of the Lord. So when when the Lord reveals his intent to bring judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord is teaching Abraham and every generation after him, that to rebel against the Lord brings destruction. It's not at all a coincidence that from here on out, for the rest of the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah will be used by the prophets and by the apostles and by the psalmists to teach Israel and to teach the church about the judgment of God. In Deuteronomy... Moses teaches Israel to keep the covenant of God or else they'll become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In Isaiah, the prophet teaches God's people that if they continue, if they continue to rebel against God, they are choosing the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jeremiah, the prophet, says that both the northern and southern kingdoms are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel, the prophet, says that God's people have become worse than Sodom. Amos, I could just keep going, but Amos says judgment is coming like God's judgment on Sodom. Jesus himself, the way himself in Matthew 10 tells tells us those who reject him, tells those who are rejecting him, their judgment will be worse than the judgment they came to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Peter, bless his heart, just spells it out for us. 2 Peter 2.6. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to to happen to the ungodly. And he goes on, but he tells us there, the cities in the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, are an example of what happens to the ungodly. I only gave you a few, but the... Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction that's coming in chapter 19, are presented as examples to God's people 27 times throughout the rest of the Bible. 
But this, this event that we see throughout the rest of the Bible is only remembered as an example because, why? Because God revealed to Abraham what was happening. He, he, he told Abraham, judgment is coming on these cities. If God had not given this revelation to Abraham, these cities would simply be forgotten objects of the justice of God. But because God does reveal his secrets to Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah are forever known as the cities that rebelled against God and were destroyed. Because God reveals his secrets to Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah lay as warnings for us. And you can imagine just the, what takes, you know, what the rest of Abraham's life, years down the road, Abraham's walking with his grandsons, Jacob and Esau, and they go through the, the, the blackened rubble that used to be these cities. And Jacob says, Grandpa, why does it smell so weird here? Why does it smell like sulfur? And Abraham says, let me tell you a story. The people of these cities were wicked and violent and oppressive and vile, they rebelled against Yahweh, and he brought justice. He's the God of justice and righteousness, and he always brings just and right judgment. And so it is that the Lord reveals to Abraham, and he reveals to us why he's including Abraham in his plans. Let me just ask you, if the Lord has done this to teach Abraham and his offspring the way of righteousness, If he has deliberately done this, if he's revealed to Abraham the judgment that is coming so that all of his offspring, including us who by faith are Abraham's offspring, so that we will all know that the judgment of the Lord is real, how should we think and talk about judgment? I think we, we shy away from this sometimes, don't we? It's not, we don't look forward to talking about these types of things. Because it reminds us of the guy with the sandwich board and the megaphone at Balboa Park saying, repent or go to hell. And we don't want to be that guy. And we don't want to be Westboro Baptist. But I think we err on the other side. When we only tell people, God loves you. He gets you. We feel sorry for you. He's just grandpa in the sky. He's proud of you as long as you're trying hard. Here at the beginning of the Bible... When the, the plan of redemption is unfolding for us to see, the beginning, the first time we see the way of the Lord even introduced, the way of righteousness and justice introduced, it is contrasted to the way of the world, which brings judgment. That story begins here in chapter 18, and then that message just continues throughout the rest of the Bible, doesn't it? Every single book of the Bible all the way through to the end. This is what the Bible's about. So if God in his infinite wisdom has revealed to you and me that his judgment is coming on those who reject the way, how dare we think that we are smarter than God to hide that? You see what I'm getting at? If God, who loves Abraham, he loves Abraham. We just saw him sit down and eat a meal with Abraham. He loves him. He's a friend of Abraham. If he loves him and he taught this to Abraham so that Abraham would teach it to his offspring and their offspring all the way down to us, who are we 
to stop teaching the way of the Lord and warning against the way of the world. Who are we? Now, there is a way to do this that is ungodly. I'll admit that. There is also a way to do this that expresses the love of God in Christ. A way that says to our lost friends in love, can you see that what you are doing is destructive to yourself and to your family and to your soul? Can I show you the way of righteousness? Can I show you the way of the Lord? I think we should allow God's means of teaching the way to be our means of teaching the way. Let's not think that we are more sophisticated than God who made us and who knows us. The Lord revealing his intentions here in our passage, that still doesn't quite explain why he's willing to, uh, to hear all of this haggling at the end. I heard some of you chuckling as we read that because it sounds a little bit gutsy, doesn't it? What we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 is, is that the reason the Lord allows this haggling is because he's inviting it. We see the invitation to Abraham in verses 20 and 21, that the Abraham, the friend of the Lord, the covenant mediator between God and the nations, is being invited by God to intercede for Sodom. So as we observe the movements in the text, the Lord sets up the reasoning first for including Abraham in his plans. Then he reveals his plans. And he says out loud what he's going to do. Look at, look at uh, which verse is this? Verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom and, and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, one question you might have here is, what, what do you mean outcry? How is there an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah if everyone there is so thoroughly wicked? Well, the outcry could simply be the sheer violence and injustice being done. Think about back in Genesis chapter 4 when Abel's blood was doing what? It was crying out from the ground. Abel's dead. He's not saying anything. But God could hear the blood soaking into the dirt, crying out. It could also be, I think both of these are true, that there are oppressed people there in those cities. And we'll see next week how very likely this is. And they're they're praying or they're crying out to God. In Exodus, the very beginning, Israel cries out. Same language, cries out from Egypt when they're under oppression and the Lord rescues them and brings judgment to Egypt. To that point, what could be happening here, uh, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Lot was greatly distressed by what was happening in his city. So maybe it is the crying out of Lot. Maybe it is the prayers of Lot or someone in his family crying out for justice, crying out for salvation from God. Either way, we need to see that the Lord is aware of what's happening in, this, in these cities. He is aware of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord knows where there is injustice being done. He knows, he sees, and he brings justice. 
This is to be an encouragement to us. Right? When we see grave injustices in all of their forms, we as Christians know that God will ultimately bring justice, and his justice is perfect. The Lord is very much aware of what is happening in Sodom. He's going down to preside as judge. Another question that you might have here is about the omnipresence and the omniscience of God. Right? As it's like, all right, God already knows what's happening there. God is everywhere. Why does this passage have him kind of coming down, seeming like uh, someone who doesn't know, so that he has to see it for himself? When we see God's coming down here, first to visit Abraham and then to judge Sodom, it is not meant to make us wonder about God's nature. Genesis has already made very clear the nature of God. He's outside of creation. He speaks a word and there's light and land and life. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He is everywhere. He doesn't have to come down. But remember what this event is pointing us to. What are we witnessing? This judgment is a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God over the world. We are meant to see the very personal nature of God's judgment. Just as this is a revelation for Abraham as to what's actually happening in his area, the book of Revelation is a revelation to John of what will take place on the earth. And that judgment is very, very personal. God and his angels pour out wrath. Then one sitting on a white horse, one who was called faithful and true in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He comes down. God will be very much present in the final judgment. And and that final judgment, as we will see in chapter 19, he will separate out the elect, he will redeem those whom the intercessor is interceding for and then bring fiery judgment to the wicked. Chapter 19 is a foreshadowing of Revelation. So when we read this, we need to understand it's not that God is myopic and he needs a closer look at Sodom because his telescope is broken. Rather, it's we, we are the nearsighted ones here. We need to have the idea of the Lord presiding as judge pounded into our brains over and over and over again. We need it spelled out clearly. The Lord himself brings judgment. It's not an accident of nature. It's not something that might be the Lord. It is his personal touch. Just as it was in Egypt when he brought the the plagues to rescue Abraham. It is in Sodom when he brings the fiery rain to, to rescue Lot, just as it will be in Egypt when he brings the plagues to rescue his people, just as it always is the Lord himself is the one who brings the judgment. So it isn't necessary for us to take our systematic theology books and try to explain this away and say, well, God isn't really like this. He doesn't need to do this. He can see what's happening and Sodom just fine. No, no, no. There's a reason for this. There's a reason for this personal visitation. It foreshadows the final day of the Lord that is coming. This is the day of the Lord for Sodom and Gomorrah. And there is a day of the Lord coming for the world. So back to the text. The Lord tells Abraham what he's going to do. 
in verses 20 and 21. And I believe what's happening here is that God is inviting Abraham to do something about it. He says, I'm going to go down there. Going down there. You have any questions for me? That's, that's kind of what's happening. He's, he's inviting Abraham to do something. He's inviting him to take this special revelation that he's been given and act on it. God doesn't give him the information just so Abraham can pat himself on the back and say, well, I must be special. I've arrived. Look at me. I'm in God's posse. I get to know the secret things. Now, with this revelation, with this knowledge that he's been given comes responsibility. And Abraham's responsibility as God's covenant mediator is intercession. It's almost a test, isn't it? The Lord, without explicitly saying it, is inviting Abraham to pray. He's inviting him to act as the mediator between the Lord and the nations. Let me show you how we're meant to see this. Look at verse 22. The two angels start walking down the mountain. And then Abraham just stands there in front of the Lord. It's really kind of awkward. (laughs) Almost staring at him, kind of looking at his facial expressions to see, what am I supposed to do with what you just told me? He hasn't been given an explicit command as to what he's supposed to do, has he? Now, now if we compare this event to what we saw in God's judgment over the world in the flood in Genesis chapter 6, you see some similarities. So you have... In Genesis 6, wickedness and violence nonstop all throughout the world. Basically, the entire world is Sodom and Gomorrah. Every intention of the heart was evil continuously. The world is in absolute self-destruct mode. God's going to stop it. And yet the Lord shows favor to Noah. He chooses Noah, same language he chooses. But he does not tell Noah, I'm going to go down and see if things are as bad as I'm hearing. No, instead, he tells Noah, Noah... The earth is filled with violence. I'm going to destroy it. And then he gives Noah an explicit command. Make an ark. There's no ambiguity about it, is there? Judgment is coming. Build an ark. That's what you're supposed to do. And Noah did all the Lord commanded him. Noah is not invited to intercede on behalf of the earth. The Lord gives him a command and he obeys. Here with Abraham, the scenario is different. Judgment is imminent, just as it was in Noah's day, but God's plan of redemption has progressed a little further along. The promised offspring who will defeat the serpent and his work, we know more about who that will be now. And we know that the nations will be blessed through Abraham. So with this revelation from God, Abraham is being invited to do some nation blessing. So when Abraham... Look at verse 22. He stands before the Lord. And the Lord doesn't say, Abraham, depart from me. Move out of my way. Get behind me. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, I need to go down to Sodom. I've got work to do. No, he, he doesn't say anything. You can see this is, this is the silent invitation from the Lord. No one stands before the Lord without the Lord's permission. To be before the Lord... That is very explicit temple language, isn't it? In the temple, everything happens before the Lord. The lampstand is before the Lord. The offerings are made before the Lord. The table is set before the Lord and so on. For Abraham to be standing before the Lord, and notice his posture. He's not bowing. He's not on his face. He's standing before the Lord. This is something that 
only an intercessor can do. Someone whom the Lord has favored and allowed into his presence in this way. Abraham, by the grace of God, through faith, has been considered righteous by God. Remember that? Abraham, by the grace of God, has been brought into covenant with God. Abraham has been promised that his sins will be atoned for by the coming offspring, so he's clean before God. And here in our passage, he has been, in so many words, invited, given permission to stand before the Lord. And once he stands before the Lord and he's not rebuked, I think he gets the hint about what he's supposed to do. He realizes his role as the intercessor, the one through whom the blessing to the nations comes. He stands before the Lord in verse 22. And then in verse 23, you have have another special verb. He draws near to the Lord. That is, he gets close, face to face. To stand before the Lord is one thing. To draw near That's quite another, isn't it? How is it that Abraham is able to draw near to the Lord the same way that you and I draw near to the Lord? Only through Christ. Or in Abraham's case, the promise of the coming Christ. Hebrews 7 says, It is through the hope of Christ that we draw near to God. Abraham's hope is in the coming offspring, the Christ. And so in that confidence, he draws near to God, he's welcomed into God's presence, and he begins to intercede on behalf of Sodom. And that interceding is what we see happening, starting in verse 23. Abraham's mediation is first to appeal to God's character. Do you see that? Will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? You're more just than that. Right? You see that repeated refrain of, God, you're just. You wouldn't do that. Now, I want, you to, I want to point out to you here that the Lord has not yet said he's going to destroy Sodom, has he? If you, as you've read this, the Lord has not said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. I'm going to destroy it. He said, I'm going down to judge it, to see what's happening. I will go down and see whether everything is as I've heard it. He doesn't say he's going to destroy it. But Abraham knows What's going to happen if God judges Sodom and Gomorrah? He knows with certainty what the Lord will find there. There's no question. He knows how wicked these cities are. He knows the Lord is just, so he knows what the outcome is going to be. Justice is coming for these cities. The question in his mind is not, is justice coming? It's it's how severe will that outpouring of judgment be? Will the Lord kill the righteous with with the wicked? No. God's character is too great for that. His justice is too great for that. So then it becomes a question of ratios, doesn't it? By what what ratio of righteous to wicked will lead the Lord to mercy? How many righteous does it take to save the wicked? So then Abraham begins that all these hypothetical scenarios. You save it if there are 50 righteous, 45, 40, 30, 10. Will not the judge of the earth do what is just? See what he's doing? Now remember, this is Abraham's first intercession. And you get the sense that this is the first time he's done this. He's, he's, he's feeling his way around the justice and the mercy of God. I know you are just, Lord. I know you are merciful, Lord. How much is, which one's more? <laughs> 
Is it, are you more just or are you more merciful? And so he's kind of using these ratios to, to, to kind of feel that out. And he keeps pressing, doesn't he? How, how merciful are you? And so at the end, they agree to, to ten righteous to save the whole city. And then they go their separate ways. Verse 33 says, And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And before we get to that last point, I, I, want, to, I want you to see here. Look at, look at verse 33. It says, When he had finished speaking to Abraham. Who's done most of the talking here? It's been Abraham, hasn't it? But this tells you, that language, when he had finished speaking to Abraham, that tells you this, this entire episode was the Lord speaking to Abraham. It confirms he desired to speak to Abraham. He knew exactly how to invite Abraham into this time of prayer. If you'll allow me to say it this way, this was, this was all a setup in order to invite Abraham to intercede. And the Lord still does this with you and me. He invites you into prayer. He invites me into prayer. Sometimes it's subtle, isn't it? You're just driving, and the Lord brings to mind someone you haven't thought of in years. And so you pray for them. Sometimes when you're already in prayer, in our family, it's usually breakfast time, and I don't want to give the impression that we have a very holy breakfast. We don't. Sometimes my breakfast prayer is, thank you for the food. Amen. But sometimes the Lord will bring to my heart one of you. Or someone in my family, or Susan's family, or, or our lost neighbors. And so we pray for them during that time, or you during that time. We, we've all heard stories of those miraculous moments when the Lord invites you to pray, or invites someone to pray like this, and for whatever reason, you begin to intercede for that person. You did missionary stories. It wasn't your, your plan to pray for that missionary but the Lord brought them to your mind, and so you pray for them, and then it turns out at that moment that you were praying, the missionary friend was going through some trial, and the Lord answered prayer from thousands of miles away. It happens daily because the Lord invites us into prayer. He invites us into prayer. And the Lord here has invited Abraham into prayer, into intercession. Abraham has obliged, and he's prayed, and they go their separate ways. And the resolution is if there are 10 found in the city, the Lord will spare the city for, for those 10. What we'll see next week, there aren't. There are not even 10 righteous people in all of those cities in the plains. It's more than Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not sure there are any righteous there. Peter says that Lot is righteous. Not from the way I see it. I, I, need to, I need to study what Peter means by that before we get to next week. Because what you're going to see with Lot is, he, I mean, he hardly wants to leave the city. And then when he does, he wants to go to another city. And then you have that weird thing with his daughters. He's not righteous. Yet the Lord redeems him. He rescues him. We're going to get there when we get there. But I'm not sure there are any righteous people in the city. We're going to explore that next week. But more importantly, we're going to see, we want to see at the end of next chapter that the Lord does answer Abraham's prayer. This is our final application this morning. The Lord does answer Abraham's prayer. See, it turns out 
All of this haggling with God between Abraham and the Lord, getting him to agree to withhold judgment on account of ten righteous people. Abraham's motivation for interceding for Sodom is actually not because he loves Sodom or the righteous people in Sodom, but because he loves his nephew Lot. And we've seen Abraham's love for Lot in action before. Abraham risked his life against those four armies from the east to rescue Lot. And he also, in so doing, rescued Sodomites. So at the end of this whole event, at the end of next week's passage, the end of chapter 19, or the middle of chapter 19, look at verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 29. I want you to see this. Because this, this gives us the true resolution to today's passage. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And we look at that and think, but, but he destroyed them. Abraham said, don't destroy them, and God destroyed them. No, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So, so what, what ends up happening at the end of this God answers Abraham's prayer. He remembered Abraham and he rescued Lot. Now let's bring this home. I want to make sure we know, first of all, that you're not Abraham and I'm not Abraham. And yet the reason that Abraham was able to stand before the Lord was because of his faith in the coming Christ. And the reason that he was able to draw near to the Lord was because of his hope in the coming Christ. We are not Abraham. But we have Abraham's access to God because of Christ. You, if you are in Christ, you have standing before God because of Christ. And you can draw near to God in Christ. Before the throne of God, above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And what is that plea? It's not our words. It's not our begging. Our strong and perfect plea is our great high priest, whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me. Christ is the true intercessor. He is the true and greater Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the the Abrahamic promises. And through Christ, we have access to God to pray, to intercede for others. And when we pray, like Abraham, our prayers, our intercessions will not be perfect. We will stumble in prayer. We will trip over our words. We will pray for dumb stuff. We will say one thing, like, Lord, save the righteous in Sodom, and mean something else. Lord, save my nephew. The Lord invites Abraham in to pray, knowing that his prayer, this this man's prayer won't be perfect. And he never rebukes Abraham for interceding. And then he answers the prayer that Abraham wasn't even praying And he rescues Lot because he remembered Abraham on account of Abraham. Does that remind you of Romans 8? Romans 8, 26. Likewise, for us, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts... The Lord was searching Abraham's heart there. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? If you've ever thought, well, I'm not sure what to pray. I don't really know how to pray or or what to say. Look at the way that bumbling Abraham, God's chosen ambassador to the nations, the chosen one through whom the Christ will come, look at the way this mighty man trips and stumbles through his prayer. All the while, he's praying for his nephew, but he never even says it. He's not sure if he can. And yet God answers his unprayed prayer through his prayer. Do you see what this is for us? This is an invitation from God to simply draw near and pray. Pray that your loved ones will be delivered from judgment. Pray that they would be taken out of lives of destruction and turned to Christ. Pray for churches in wicked cities and oppressive countries that they would not become corrupted by the world around them. Pray for our church. Pray for the members of our church. Pray for your family members. Abraham prayed the wrong prayer and God answered him anyway. So Christian, pray. The Lord is inviting you. He's inviting you in to his his throne room, into his heavenly council. I have been asked before on various occasions what I want to see. This is this funny idea that the senior pastor has to be a visionary. What what is your vision? Here's my vision. It's not church growth. It's not rapid multiplication. It's not a bumping children's ministry. It's not a hip coffee stand out in the area out there. My goal is simply that we would be a healthy and faithful church. Well, how do you measure a healthy and faithful church? What numbers can you write down and send to the denomination? You can, bet, you can measure budgets. You can measure buildings and numbers, but how do you measure health and faithfulness? Well, because the measure of a healthy church is how closely she identifies in Christ, and that's not something you can see, You can't measure holy lives numerically, can you? You can't measure devotion to Christ. You can't measure a church's confidence in Christ. But you know what you can do? You can watch that church. And you can see how that church uses the access that she has in Christ. And you can observe how a church prays. I love that the women are getting together to pray on Zoom. So if you haven't yet, talk to Tamri, pray on Tuesdays, Tuesday mornings and Tuesday evening, evenings with the ladies. This Wednesday evening, we're going to gather to pray. As a church, and we only do this once a month. A day is coming and we'll soon be here when we will do this more than once a month. Lord willing. But I would invite you to come join us. If you, if you can't come join us in person, we're going to post the prayer sheet that, that Josh writes up every, every month. We're going to post that on the church website main page. I know that some of you can't drive at night. Download that prayer sheet and pray the same prayers with us in your home. But I'm inviting you, the Lord is inviting you and us as a church to fumble your way through prayer and let the Spirit of God intercede for you. Come Join us and pray imperfect prayers and worship the Lord in Christ through using one of the greatest gifts we have in him. Access to the God of the universe. The God who has shown us 
his love in Christ, the God who answers prayers.